And in the middle of this time, when Albert is supposed to give these, uh, this huge address to the people of England and to let them know that things are going to be okay, they've got a king here that cannot even speak without stuttering, that can't get words out in a moment when they need a North Star, in the moment when they need a leader, in the moment when they need someone who will give them hope. Because not only are they in a depression, they don't know this yet, but they're just a couple years away from the start of World War II. They need someone who will guide them, and they've got a king now who's got literally nothing to say to them. And they know, or at least Albert knows, he believes deep in his heart of hearts, even though that he is officially the man for the job, he believes deeply with all his being he is not the man for the job. This is the situation that we find Moses in, in the middle of Exodus three and four, this moment where leadership is being thrust upon him and he is doing everything he can to get out of it because he knows, he knows just like King Albert, he is not the man for this job. We've been walking through, as Alex said, this book of Exodus. And if this is your first time, just a little bit of catch up for you. In Exodus chapter one, we find the people of God, Israel, enslaved to the most powerful nation in the world at the time, to Egypt. And they've got no hope of rescue because no one's going to come and challenge Egypt. And then in the next chapter, there's this little ray of hope as a baby named Moses is born. And God protects him and keeps him from being killed, which was the policy at that time, that every uh, male in the Hebrew people group would be killed off when they were born. God protects him from that. And he ends up growing up in the palace of Pharaoh himself, being raised by Pharaoh's daughter. And it looks like there's this chance for deliverance for God's people as Moses tries to step in and change some things. But all of that falls apart pretty quickly. And the chapter ends with Moses on the run, a fugitive and an exile running for his life, living miles and miles and miles away from the very people that we're hoping, that they're hoping he'll be saving. So now he's been out for decades in the region of Midian, and he's just been shepherding flocks for his father-in-law, a man named Jethro. One day he's out um, shepherding them and he takes them up this mountainside, the mount called Horeb, which is also called Sinai. And it's a mount that figures really largely into this. Rachel talked about this last week, that there he encounters God in a burning bush. And God tells him, I have seen the suffering of my people. I have observed them and I am going to rescue them. And then he tells Moses, and I'm going to use you to do that. I'm sending you back to rescue them. And Moses is not very fond of this idea. He's not very excited about it. And so he gives, in the middle of this conversation, five major pushbacks to God. Now, last week, you actually saw two of them already. These two kind of questions slash objections that he gives to God as God is telling him, I want you to go speak to Pharaoh and lead my people out. The first pushback he gives is this. It's in verse 11 of chapter 3. Who am I? Like, God, of everyone you could send to do this, who am I to do this? Like, I tried, and I failed, and I don't know if you noticed, but I'm just, like, all I'm doing, I just hang out with sheep all day, God. I'm not a man who's ready to lead people. And so he speaks to God and says, I cannot do this. Who am I? And God responds, not by answering his question, but by simply saying, I'll be with you. What does it matter who you are? I'll be with you. And then the second pushback Moses gives is in chapter or in verse 13, where he says, essentially, who are you? Like if I go there and I tell them, hey, I'm supposed to set you free. And this God told me to do this. And they go, who? Who are you talking about? What's his name? What am I supposed to tell them, God? And God responds with what Rachel last week called two of the most important verses in Exodus and even in all the Old Testament. And I would agree because if you remember, we said this earlier, Exodus is not primarily about the Exodus. Exodus is not primarily about the rescue of the plagues. Exodus is primarily about God making himself known revealing who he is and what he is like. And so in verses 14 and 15 of Exodus chapter 3, God gives these very famous verses. God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites. 
Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. We talked about this the very first night. Anytime you see the word Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, that means that it's actually replacing in Hebrew the name Yahweh, the name of God. And it's these two phrases he gives Moses. I am. That's who's sending you. And then he says, Yahweh, which is kind of a play on that word. I will be. That is my name. Essentially, he is saying, I am the existing one. I am the one who simply exists. The one who's in his very nature to exist, which is not true of everything else. Everything else in all existence is contingent. That is, it is dependent on someone else or something else for its existence. And there was a time when it did not exist, and there will be a time when it ceases to exist. Everything falls into that category except for this one, except for Yahweh, the existing one. And that existing one, he says, will go with you. And that's what you need to know is that I, the existing one, the one who depends on no one or nothing for who I am, the one who will always be, that God goes with you. And this should settle it, but it does not quite settle it for Moses. And so he launches in our chapter today into his third major pushback against God. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, read like this. Moses answered, Well, what if they won't believe me and will not obey me, but say, Yahweh did not appear to you? And Yahweh asked him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. Throw it on the ground, he said. So Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. And Yahweh told Moses, stretch out your hand and grab it by the tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. This will take place, he continued, so that they will believe that Yahweh, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. So the third pushback that Moses gives is, well, what if they don't believe me? What if they don't want to listen to me? What if they don't trust me and my authority? This is actually a reasonable question because Moses has tried before. He's tried to kind of set these people free and bring them onto his side, and they didn't go to his side. They didn't trust him enough, and they kind of turned on him. And so he asks this question. God answers this question with a question of his own. What is that in your hand? Moses replies, it's a staff. And this is actually, I think, important, this staff. It's something that's going to come up uh, multiple times in this text. And I think there is significance to this, which we'll get to in just a little bit. But he tells him to throw it on the ground. Essentially, he says, I'm going to give you an ability to answer this question. If they don't believe you, if they don't trust that I really sent you. And so he, he gives him these three signs. The first thing is to throw the staff on the ground and it turns into a snake. And then the second thing is to put his hand inside his cloak And as he puts his hand inside of his cloak, it turns diseased and leprous. We'll read, this is in the next verses that we're going to kind of sum up. We'll move to that. And then the last thing he says, and if they don't trust that, he says, you will take some water from the Nile and you'll pour that water out onto the ground and it will turn to blood. These three signs you will use to show them who is behind all this and who is sending you. Now, I don't think that any of those signs are random or arbitrary. I don't think God's just choosing kind of special magic tricks to kind of do in front of the people of God. All three of them, I think, have significance. The first, the snake, uh, is, is important because actually the snake is a symbol of the royal authority of Egypt. Actually, you, you kind of know this. Most people, if you have like a kind of picture in your head, Pharaoh, and the crown that he's wearing on him, and what does that crown have? a cobra up at the front, the figure of a snake. A snake was almost like a bald eagle for us today. It's kind of this sign of their power. And so God's ability to say, look, I can create a snake and you can grab it by the tail. It won't do anything to you. It'll go back to his staff. Is God saying, I've got authority over Egyptian authority. And then he shows that he has authority over disease and sickness, which is a sign of the plagues that are about to come on Egypt. And then he tells him to pour out the water, and it turns into blood, which shows God's power over over the elements. But the specificity of the fact that it's specifically water from the Nile matters, because the Nile is the life force of all of Egypt. This desert area that depends on the Nile for its food, for its water, for all those things. And God says, I've got control over that. Everything that you look to and depend on, I have authority over. 
And so this is this marker for Moses. But Moses has another pushback, another objection, starting in verse 10. But Moses replied to Yahweh, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, either in the past or recently, or or since you have been speaking to your servant, because my mouth and my tongue are sluggish. Then Yahweh said to him, Who placed a mouth on humans? Who makes a person mute or deaf, seen or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Now go, I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. So the fourth objection that Moses gives or pushback is, I don't know how to speak. I'm not eloquent. And he uses this word, I am dull of tongue and dull of mouth. It's translated sluggish there in the CSB. And and we don't know, scholars don't know exactly what Moses is trying to get at here. Some people believe maybe he's saying, I've lost my ability to speak in the Egyptian language. I've been living out here in the desert for decades, and so I'm the wrong guy to go talk to Pharaoh. Others think, and I think it's probably more likely, Moses may even be speaking about like an actual speech impediment that he has that he's not good at speaking, that he has some form of stutter or stammer himself. And we don't know if Moses might just be making excuses here, but it seems like maybe not, because God doesn't stop him and go, no, that's not true. God simply asks him, and who made your tongue? And who made your mouth? You're talking to him. You, you think this is a problem that's too big for me? I can, I can handle this. What does this matter? And then finally, Moses gives one final pushback in verse 13. Moses said, please, Lord, send someone else. And then Yahweh's anger burned against Moses. And he said, isn't Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And also he is on his way now to meet you. He will rejoice when he sees you. You will speak with him and tell him what to say. And I will help both you and him to speak and will teach you both what to do. He will speak to the people for you. He will serve as a mouth for you and you will serve as God to him. And take this staff in your hand that you will perform the signs with. So the fifth pushback is not a question. It's not an objection. It's just simply, I don't want to. Please, God, just anybody else, just not me. Find somebody else to do this. And God has graciously responded to every one of Moses' questions, to every one of his objections as they've come up. But now there's nothing to respond to. Moses doesn't have a question. Moses doesn't have an excuse or reason. He's just putting his foot down. I mean, politely, but still putting his foot down. I'm not going to do it. I don't want to do it. And so now God is angry. And yet... He still meets Moses where he's at. He still chooses to to kind of condescend to him, to to kind of compromise with him and says, fine, I'll send your brother Aaron and, and I will teach you both what to speak. And he says this really interesting thing here. Actually, there are these two interesting things. The first is that Aaron will speak on your behalf and you will serve as God to him. That sounds kind of weird and odd at first. I think what he's essentially saying is, is in the same way when God would speak, he would speak through the prophets. The prophets would be his mouthpiece. He's saying, Moses, I'm going to give you my word, and then Aaron will be your mouthpiece. Just as the prophets speak for God, Aaron will speak for Moses. And that's the idea. But then the last thing he says is this one. Hey, and don't forget the staff, which is, again, I just think interesting and significant. Do not forget that staff. Make sure that you bring that with you. Moses, at this point, finally says yes. And he goes to his father-in-law, Jethro, and he asks for permission to leave. I need to go. God is calling me to go back to Egypt. And Jethro gives his blessing to him. And then we can jump down to verse 24, to this text that I really, really considered trying to skip over tonight. To these very strange verses, this little mini thing. And I, I wanted to jump over so that not... I mean, partly because it's weird, but partly because I don't know if we really have time to unpack it all here. And it's just odd, but let me read them to you what happens in verse 24. Uh, Let me, sorry, got to find it. There it is. On the trip, so Moses is on his way home, or on his way to Egypt. On the trip, at an overnight campsite, it happened that Yahweh confronted him and intended to put him to death. That's Moses. So Zipporah took a flint cut off her son's foreskin, threw it at Moses' feet, and said, You are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he, that is God, let him alone. And at that time, she said, You are a bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. 
So I don't think that probably needs much explanation. We'll just move on to the next verses. No, um, truly, I was like, man, maybe we should just bypass this. I just don't know if we have time, but I'll, well, I'll give it a shot. All right, I'll give you a couple, a couple little thoughts at least. Um, first is this. There are a number of early church fathers. Augustine is one of the big ones who talks about texts like this. And he says there's a reason that, that passages like this are in here. And he says humility is the reason. Uh, that these are here not so much to bring clarity because it doesn't, but to bring humility. There are so many things in here that are just hard to discern. So many, uh, there's so few details given, and what details are given are just odd, and we don't know where to place them or what they are. And, and Augustine says it's good, actually, that there are texts like this in the Scripture, that as much as you may be able to study and study, and, and the main message of the Bible, the main truths of the Scripture are simple and plain to grasp. Who God is and God's mission to bring the whole world into his presence and his sending his son Jesus to die in our place for our sins so that that could be made possible. That's something that anybody can grasp. But there are some texts that you could study and study and study. And at the end, after years and years, scholars just have to throw up their hands and go, I don't know. And that's what I'm doing right now. I don't know. But let me give you a shot. One of the things that is happening in the book of Exodus, as I said, God is at work to make himself known. This book is unfolding in a day and in a culture where it is just assumed that there are many gods. Monotheism isn't really even a thing at this point. It's just assumed that there are all kinds of gods, and all of them are, they might have some differences, but they're essentially the same. The God of Egypt and the God of, of Canaan and the God of the Amorites and all these things, they're, they're, they're essentially kind of the same version of different versions, and they all look very similar. And, and what God is at pains to do, as he calls his people Israel, is to mark himself as different to say that I am not like all the other gods, all the other idols that everyone worships, all the other false gods who make these terrible demands on their people, that they would sacrifice their own children in the fire, that they would, uh, that they would do all these detestable things. I am not like that, and I will be seen as different, and I will mark myself as different and unique. And one of the ways that I will do that is through my people, because they will be different. They will not act like all the other people and the detestable practice that they do. They will not live like everyone else lives. And so throughout the scriptures, he calls them to these different markers that set them apart as different. There's this very famous phrase, you are to be holy or separate as I am separate. People will know that I am not like Baal. People will know that I am not like Ra, the sun god. People will know that I am not like all the other gods when they look at you and they go, those people are different. And one of the ways that he chooses to do this from the very beginning, Genesis 17, when he calls Abram and says, I'm going to make a nation out of you, is he does this through the marker of circumcision, that every male born into Abraham's family and his descendants will be circumcised. Why does he choose circumcision? I don't know. But that's what he does. And it's this separator. And what appears to have happened is that Moses, even though he was born into an Israelite family, and since he was born there, he would have been circumcised himself. When he moves away into this land away from everyone, he decides to kind of leave that behind. And this very important separator between him and the rest of the world, he goes, ah, it's not that significant. And it kind of leaves that by the wayside. And as he begins to travel back to do the work that God has called him to do, God says no. We're not doing this. You're not, you're not going to come and try to set my people free without trying to be like my people. You're not going to try and come and serve me without trying to mark yourself as belonging to me. This whole thing where you're going to look like the rest of the world, but try, you don't get to pick and choose which markers you will follow when you choose to follow me. And he says, Moses, this goes no further until this is dealt with. That's what I think is happening. By the way, a good reminder for us that we don't pick and choose when it comes to God's word, what pieces we choose are relevant, what pieces we choose are convenient, what things we want to follow and don't follow. We do what he calls us to do because he's God. And that seems to be what's taken place here. Eventually, Moses and his family make their way down to Egypt and they go and they meet with the Israelite elders and they tell them what God has said to them. And they do these signs in front of them to prove that Yahweh himself is behind it. And we finish with this verse here in verse 31, it says, The people believed, and when they heard that Yahweh had paid attention to them and that he had seen their misery, they knelt low and they worshipped. And so, finally, the rescue project, the Exodus mission, has finally begun. Even, even 
when Moses tried to resist it, even when Moses put his foot down and tried to stop in many ways to not do it, God was persistent in bringing Moses along to do this work for him, which begs this question, by the way, why? Why is God so persistent in trying to convince Moses to do this? Why doesn't he, when Moses puts his foot down one, two, three, four, five times, why doesn't God just go, fine, I'll do it without you? Like, why does he have to, it seems, have Moses come do this thing with him? So much so that he's willing to, to, to compromise and to meet him where he's at and give him all of these things to try and help him to go there. That's what I want to talk about on the other side of our break. But we'll take a couple minutes now, stretch your legs, and we'll jump back to it in a few minutes. Doing, ma'am. How are you? Good. I wanted to come find you real quick. Yeah. Um, one, I just when you're talking, I just I'd love to hear you talk. Dude, man. thank you, brother. To hear you preach, but Appreciate that, man. Yeah, very I much. Just, I just, I don't know. Can I give you a hug? Yeah, like absolutely. Seen you in a while, man. Absolutely. It does feel like it's been a little bit. Like, yeah, I just haven't seen you, and I'm just encouraged every time you speak. Thank you, ma'am. You know thank you. Appreciate yeah. that very much, dude. Yeah. Hey, I want to uh, want to do something kind of weird with you. Uh, I want to, I want to, at some point, uh, I want to come and just meet and pray over you, actually. Okay. Uh, I, I really don't know. Uh, I've never done this before, but I just feel like compelled to, I, I want to pray for like a spiritual gift for you. Pray for, honestly, I kind of want to pray for the gift of evangelism for you. And so there's a part in scripture that talks about like Paul laying hands on Timothy and praying for a gift for him. So I just thought, man. As, as Vinny's venturing off in this new uh, bit of faith and stuff. I want to be praying for that. It's all you, man. We're standing guard for you. So, yeah. So, well, obviously, we don't even need a whole lot of time, but at some point I want to, I want to sit down when, it's not, when we don't have people barging in stuff. I'd love to just meet with you and just pray that, pray that prayer over you. So Yeah, I, um, I was also thinking, I was kind of thinking, I was like, man, I kind of want to meet with Drew because it's been a little while. And yeah. Every time we meet, um, it's great, but I just, you know, I haven't had, like, questions that I feel are, are prevalent, and I, yeah. don't, I don't want to say, hey, can we just meet just for yeah. the sake of meeting, because, I mean, we're both pretty busy people. Yeah, man, yeah. But, uh, yeah, do you know where the paper towels are? I'm looking everywhere for Paper him. towels. And I'm checking everything. Let's, uh, let's see, would it be in the kitchen here? Or, I mean, the closet? <coughs> Hey, Dana, how are you? There's napkins. Let's see. Mm, cups. Plates. Seeing everything but paper towels. Need some napkins? Wait. Uh, this might. Oh, uh, yeah, we can use that. Those are blue. <laughs> I mean, hey. <laughs> if it works, it works. But yeah, I would absolutely love to. Okay. Let's try find a time next week where we can, even even if it's short, even if it's just get together for a second and, and do that. Okay. That'd be awesome. Okay. Yep. What's up, Thomas? How you doing, ma'am? Good. Thank you, brother. Appreciate not, it. I've never heard those verses before. Dude, they are, they're wild ones, yeah. huh? Uh, <laughs> so, will you be here, like, after yeah. preach a little bit? Yeah. Okay, I'll find you real quick, okay. and we can find a time. Sounds perfect. Awesome. Sounds perfect. Excuse me, Ashton. 
for my favorite team when I was a kid. Everyone's favorite team in the 90s. Chicago Bulls. How are you? How are you? Good. Are you looking for anything? Yeah, so it just curves right there. So it looks like you got a line. Yep. So, table ish about to start, I'm hearing. Well, we've kind of been doing stuff, we just okay. haven't done a lot. Okay. Haven't really decided if we're going to do like consistent yeah. stuff on Tuesday nights yet. I think we are. Cool. We kind of started this week. Cool. Met some cool girls. Awesome. Really vibe with this one on journey. Yeah. Want to hear a crazy story? Also, yes. I'm about to go out to cut me off at any point. Yeah. This girl named Maria from Germany. Her family lived in New Mexico for like a year when she was in high school. Okay. They just wanted to live in the States. Okay. Okay. She's a Christian. Okay. They moved back to Germany. She came to school here and she came to Sunnybrook like one of the first weeks she was in town. She's been coming to Sunnybrook. Okay. So I don't remember. But she, uh, she was leaving Sunnybrook the first Sunday she was there and she saw a girl in the parking lot that she recognized. And she's like, how do I know this girl? That, that family, I forgot their name. I asked Martin, and figured out who it was. Moved from New Mexico to Stillwater. Oh, yeah, there is a family that moved yeah. from New Mexico. Whoa, that's and crazy. And she went to school. With the, isn't that crazy? That is so crazy. The world is so tiny. Yes. That is awesome. That is so awesome. So wild. <laughs> and then we have a potluck on Saturday. Sweet. I'm going to try and make something here. Yep. What when? <laughs> like, oh, I was so like, dang it! I was trying to figure out: do I start over for the recording? I'm like, I'm not doing that. No. So. <laughs> Good. Yo, You're like, I did it! Uh, I went for it! <laughs> I went for it! I know you put on the screen. I heard person next to like, what? <laughs> I was like, yeah. <laughs> yep. Had plenty of time, unfortunately. It's like maybe if I can just kind of stall long enough, I'll be like, you like, know, yep, early, yep. Ah, that's cool. He said, okay, see you right now. I gotta bring him up. You want limo in my car if it has hair in it? No. Oh. That's what I just said. I just said. If you, there you go. Yeah, come on. He sheds everything. Hey. Cookies are up there. We're at the end. We're at the end. Okay. So it's just me at the end, right? Okay. Yes. Yes. So I didn't. Okay. So I got to do two announcements. Okay. Retreat. Okay. Yes. Yes. Retreat and cookies. Okay. Okay. Did not put a lot of thought into that retreat announcement. That's all right. We'll get it. Mine has been elsewhere. How is how is she? Yeah. Okay. Okay. 
Okay. Okay. Two minutes. Okay. Two minutes. Yeah. She goes, I'm gonna be honest, I kind of thought you were. Good. That's awesome. That's awesome. I just want to say before we talk about more important things, if you have heard the song September playing multiple times tonight, you're like, I feel like I've just been listening to it. Well, today is the day for the song. And just to be clear, earlier I actually thought that the song's name was Earth, Wind, and Fire, and that the band's name was oh, come September. On. So I've confessed and repented, and I celebrate, I sing the song. So we've been playing it all night, so you're welcome. A little reminder for you. Um, my name is Rachel. I'm on staff of the table. Thank you. Um, I get to work with Randy and Drew and Alex. So Drew's the one who's teaching. Randy will be up later. Alex started us out to help me provide some clarity. Randy's a girl. Um, that's kind of confusing. So just <laughs> like to the story. Um, we have two announcements for you. And I want to introduce um, Chandler Dean. So we tried really hard to get Chimmy Two Chains from last <laughs> week back uh, to do a rap, but unfortunately she's working really hard on her upcoming album and like contract stuff, so she's not able to be here. But Chandler Dean is able to be here, so not a rap tonight. Um, but Chandler, tell us what's going on. Yeah, so I feel like we've had a lot of sporting events lately. We've had pickleball, uh, we've had uh, frisbee golf. You know, we've had. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Yes, totally I'm recording now. Okay. <clears throat> all right, all right. Back into it. I want to tell you guys about a guy named Stacy King. I think I got a picture of Stacy King here. Can we throw Stacy King up on the board? There's Stacy King. Yes, dude. Some glorious, some glorious. Uh, early 90s basketball shorts there. Stacy King, as you can tell, uh, was a basketball player in the early 90s, actually from Lawton, Oklahoma. Anybody here from Lawton? Lawton people? Okay. This is one of your boys right here, okay? So, Stacy King, basketball player from Lawton, Oklahoma, played for my favorite childhood team. 
which is which is basically every kid's favorite team in the 90s, and that was the Chicago Bulls. I loved, loved the Chicago Bulls in the 90s, primarily because they had who? Michael Jordan, because they had the greatest of all time. And so because they had Michael Jordan and because they had Scottie Pippen and all these, I loved the Bulls. But even though he played for my favorite team, I do not remember this man. I don't remember anything about this guy. And there's probably a couple different reasons for that. One is because he played for the Bulls kind of early on. Uh, so I was only like six when he was drafted his rookie year, 1990. And then so he was just there for three or four years. When I was really getting into it, he's probably already gone. Here's the other reason, though, is that Stacey King is a somewhat forgettable basketball player. That's, sorry, that's, I'm not trying to be mean. It's just true. He, in a, on a team full of these amazing names and these Hall of Famers, Stacey King was essentially kind of a role player. No, he wasn't kind of. He was a role player. He was there just to do a few things, to, to score a few points. Uh, primarily kind of rebounding was his thing, but he, he, he was mostly sitting on the bench. He didn't play a whole lot. He, he averaged, I think, this, this year, 1990, averaged like eight points a game, and that was, one of his, that was his best year ever with the Bulls. So he didn't do a ton. But Stacey King is remembered for a couple different things. Uh, there is this one thing, this one night, uh, that was kind of a really big one for him in this interview that he gave. One night uh, against the Cleveland Cavaliers, Michael Jordan scored his all-time high. He scored 69 points in a single game uh, and beat the Cavs in overtime. This really big moment. Things almost slipped away. Uh, Stacy King in that game scored one point. Uh, hit. He, he had a chance to shoot four free throws, missed three of them, made one of them at the end. Okay? Almost cost him the game by missing some, but he made that last point at the end. At the end of the game, they interviewed Stacey King, asked him what he thought about the game. And I just want to make sure I get this quote right. Uh, he said, I will always remember this as the night that Michael Jordan and I combined to score 70 points. <laughs> and I thought that was awesome. And, and even though I don't remember him, he's become one of my favorites now, just because of that line right there. I tell you this story to explain this to you tonight. Moses is Stacy King. Moses plays the Stacy King role. And it can be easy, actually, to forget that. It can be easy when you read through this book to see all the things that it's about to happen. When you get to see Moses going and confronting Moses or confronting Pharaoh and calling down plagues and leading people through the Red Sea and doing all these incredible things, it's easy to put your focus on him. But our text tonight, if you paid attention at all, our text tonight reminds us that that is not the case. That Moses is not the focus of this and he is not the hero of this story. Moses knows from the outset that he is not the hero. Moses knows that he is not bringing much to the table here. He's not powerful. He's not eloquent. He doesn't have a lot of connections. He's been working out in the wilderness with sheep for the past couple decades. He thinks that God has the wrong guy. But the thing is, it's not going to be Moses' power or eloquence or charisma that's going to set Israel free. It's going to be God's power. It's going to be God who does all this. Of the 70 points scored in the Exodus, okay, Yahweh has 69 of them, all right? Moses has one. And even that one point really is God's power through Moses to do those things. God is the major player at work. The truth is, and this is what's wild to think about, the truth is that God could have done all of this without Moses. He didn't need Moses to go confront Pharaoh. He doesn't need Moses to send the plagues or to part the Red Sea. He could have done all of that without hope from Moses or Aaron or anyone else, but he doesn't want to. He, don't want to, he doesn't want to do it without Moses. He wants to use Moses to be a part of this mission, of this exodus, of this incredible project, to the point that he is willing to graciously talk it out with Moses on the side of Sinai. Moses, Moses doesn't have any like rights to be talking it out or debating with God, but God is willing to graciously talk it out with him, to sit there and patiently answer all of Moses' objections, just so he can convince Moses to join him, to become a member of his team and to go do what he wants to do. This is one of the amazing things about God, 
is that even though he doesn't need anyone's help to accomplish any of his purposes, he loves to use us anyway. He loves to use people to fulfill his tasks and purposes on this earth. When he wants to go free his people from Egypt, he calls Moses to do it. When he wants to defeat a giant named Goliath and the Philistines who are oppressing the Israelites later on, he uses a little boy named David to do it. When he wants to speak to his people as they're rebelling against him and plead with them to come back, he doesn't speak straight down from the heavens. He uses the prophets to do it. And when he wants to come and set the entire world free to redeem a lost and broken world, paving the way for people to be saved and restored back to him, well, for that he sends Jesus. Because there are some tasks that only the Son of God can take care of, and that's one of them. But even in the sending Jesus, he doesn't just send Jesus fully grown. He chooses to use this little backwoods peasant girl named Mary to deliver Jesus into the world and to raise him and to care for him. And he uses Joseph to protect and provide for him all the way through these things. He, he uses people to see these projects through. And after Jesus has conquered sin and death by his own crucifixion and through his resurrection, and now the whole world needs to hear about the incredible thing that Jesus does, this life-saving news that everyone has to know, he chooses to leave and sent people to do it. To let the church go and do the work. God is like a dad who invites his kid to go join him on some work project in the garage, knowing that the kid's not going to be much help, knowing that if anything, the kid's probably going to make the task harder. But he wants to bring his kid along. He wants to bring the little girl, the little guy along because he loves him, because he wants to do that project alongside of him. So why? Why does God choose to do it this way? There's some people who would say that's, that's a flaw in God's plan and reasoning, to use imperfect people messed up people to try and fulfill his perfect plan. I don't think it is. I don't think that it's a fault on his part. There's this preacher, Kevin DeYoung, and he's written some books and talked about some of this stuff. He says this. Actually, it's a twofold reason. There's a twofold purpose for why God chooses to use people when he could do it himself anyway. And sometimes, by the way, God does it himself. But so often he chooses to use people. And he says it is because it increases God's glory and it increases our joy. And that would be probably the the main takeaway I want for you today, to know this, that God invites us to be a part of his purposes for his glory and for his joy. That God is inviting you in. He doesn't need you, but he wants you. God is calling you to come be on his team. God is calling you to come be a part of his, uh, of his mission and his purposes and what he wants to accomplish in this world. And he's doing that because when you do that, it gives him glory and it gives him joy. A really big verse for us at the table, one that we come back to quite a bit, and there's so many I wanted to be able to talk about tonight, but we'll just settle in here. Ephesians 2 10. Rachel talked about Ephesians 2 last week and these really key verses. I think she got us all the way up to 8, maybe 9. It talks about this idea that we have been saved by grace through faith. And none of this is our doing. No one is good enough to save themselves. No one is smart enough or wise enough or religious enough or spiritual enough to get God to like them, to get God to save them. God did it out of the abundance of his love and kindness and grace. He saved us into his family. And that is incredible news. But the really good news doesn't stop there because the very next verses in verse 10 tells us that God's not done with you once he saves you. That God's got more for you, that he wants more for you, that he wants to do more in you. And this is what we see in Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. That is, just as God created you originally, just as he formed you in your mother's womb and made you the person that you are, he has now, for those of you who have given your life to Christ, for those of you who have placed your faith in Jesus, now he's done something new. He's done it all over again. He has recreated you in Christ Jesus. And he's made you into a new kind of purpose, or new kind of person with a specific 
purpose. He has given you unique talents and gifts and passions and experiences because he wants you to be able to use those things for his kingdom and his mission and his church. This is what you were made for. This is what you were remade for. And if you are a follower of Jesus, this is you, the very handiwork, the very craftsmanship, the very workmanship of God designed to give your life towards the mission and purposes of God. And if you have not yet given your life to Jesus, he is calling you to it. Calling you not just to know him, not just to love him, but to enter into the greatest mission project the world has ever seen. To be a part of seeing this whole world come back to its maker. To be a part of seeing lost lives come and made whole, broken lives restored. To be a part of that. He's calling you into that tonight. This is what you were made for. It's one of our four big things at the table. We have these four values that we try to talk about a lot, that we try to emphasize a lot, that we want to see built out in your life. And one of them is called missional living. The definition that we use for missional living is simply this, living intentionally for Christ's mission and his church, using the things that God has given me to serve his church. This is what we want for all of you. We want you to fulfill your role in the mission of God, to take the brain that God has given you and the talents that God has given you and the gifts and the passions and the time that you have and the money that he allows you to make through your job and through your work. He wants to take all of those things and use those things for something bigger than yourself, for something that will last longer than your short little time on this earth. And here's where there's some of you who I know right now are going, that's great, Drew. Well, what if I don't have any of that? What if I don't have gifts or talents? What if I don't have passions? What if I don't have a lot of great experience? What if I don't have lots of resources that I can use to give or to help? What if the thought of talking to someone about Jesus absolutely terrifies me? What if I don't have any talents that can be used to serve or volunteer in the church? I can't come try out for the worship team. I don't have gifts like that to use. What if, what if I'm just not cut out for kingdom work, for the big mission of God? If that's you tonight, here's what I want to say. Welcome to the club. Welcome to the club, the club that Moses is a member of, the club that David is a member of, the club that Gideon and Mary and the Apostle Paul and everyone else is a member of. None of us is sufficient to live the kind of missional life that God has called us to. But that is the whole point, and that's where the glory and the joy come in. Did you notice that most of Moses' objections centered on himself? Who am I? What am I supposed to say? God, I'm not a good leader. What am I supposed to tell them? God, I'm not eloquent. I can't speak. Most of Moses' responses centered on uh, himself, but all of God's answers are centered around God. I will be with you. I am Yahweh. I am the one who gave you your mouth. I can teach you, and I can teach Aaron, who I'll send to you, what to say. God's response to Moses' insufficiency is not a pep talk, and it is not an encouragement, and it is not even a threat. God's response to Moses' insufficiency is to remind him of Yahweh's sufficiency. Because that's all that matters in this given moment, and that is glorious. His glory increases when he, instead of just going and doing it himself, he chooses to use this fearful, ineloquent, backwards shepherd like Moses. And he uses that guy and his little shepherd staff. Do you know why I think God keeps grabbing a hold of the staff? Hey, don't forget the staff. Hey, throw the staff down. Hey, remember to bring that staff. Hey, later in verse 20, I don't know if you noticed, we kind of skipped this. Verse 20, it's called God's staff. I think one of the reasons he emphasizes the staff is because it is a constant reminder of the kind of person Moses was when God called him to do this big project. A nobody. A lowly shepherd. You know, if he would have called him 40 years earlier, he would have called a prince of Egypt to go and do the bidding. And God could have done that, and that would have made sense. And everybody would have gone, oh yeah, use the prince of Egypt to set him free. And God chooses not to do that. He waits till Moses is a nobody, and that's the guy he uses. Grab the staff, Moses, and let it be a constant reminder of who you are 
And let it be a constant reminder of the kind of person that I, Yahweh, am able to use. And so he calls him to do these things and brings him to do these things. And you need to keep that in mind. Whenever you feel like God is calling you to do something hard or difficult, whenever you feel like the Spirit is nudging you towards sacrificial things that you're not sure you want to do, sacrificial things you don't know if you have the ability to do, like to to talk to a classmate or a family member about Jesus. Whenever you feel this, this pressing on you, like you should be serving or volunteering for a specific role in church, or whenever you feel him weighing on you to serve your selfish roommates who only look out for themselves and drive you crazy, and you don't think you've got it in you to do those things, whenever you feel him pressing you or calling you to give up a sinful habit or a sinful relationship or to be generous beyond your comfort level and your comfort zone, and you think to yourself, I can't do this, God. You've got the wrong guy. You've got the wrong girl. The truth is you're probably right. Maybe you can't. Maybe you don't have the ability by your own strength, but maybe that's the whole point. That God will get the glory from using his power to accomplish his purposes in spite of your weakness, in spite of the ability that you don't have the strength in yourself, and you get the joy of being on his team. You get the joy of being a part of a life-changing, history-shaping work that you could never do on your own. Is this not, by the way, what Christianity is at its root? I mean, the whole point of Christianity, the thing that separates this book and this way of following God from every other religion is that it is not built on what we're able to do or accomplish. That God goes and he grabs a hold of people who cannot clean themselves up, who cannot make themselves good enough, who aren't all put together. And so why would we expect that after he saves us that now he's only going to use special people? That now he's only going to call the ultra-gifted and the super-talented. No, no, no. The whole way it works is that he calls people who can't fix themselves. So it would make sense that he uses people who cannot strengthen themselves. Who do not have the ability within themselves to do what is right to do what God is calling us to. It is God's goodness to us in Christ that brings us into his kingdom. It is God's goodness to us that enables us to serve that kingdom. And I think that God is willing and wants to use you and whatever meager offering you may have. I think you may think to yourself, I've only got like nothing. I'm Stacy King. I've got one free throw. That's all I've got to be able to contribute to this thing. And God says to you, come on. Bring that free throw, bring that one thing and watch what I can do with it. Let me give you one piece of advice as we close out and then one verse. If you want to be the kind of person who seeks to do difficult things for God, seeks to to follow God's leading and watch him do really incredible things where you could not. If I could give you this piece of advice and that is as college students, don't look too far ahead. I think when we start to think about like what, what thing does God want to do through me and in my life, I think the natural tendency is to start to think three, four, five years down the road. Does God want me to go into ministry? God, does God want me to be a missionary? Does God want me to start like a nonprofit or start an orphanage or help kids? Those are good questions. And I think it's okay to ask those questions, but don't, don't skip the next couple years to start asking those questions. As a matter of fact, don't skip tomorrow to ask those questions. If God's going to bring you to do big things later on in life, and I don't know what those things may be, and by big things, I don't necessarily mean impressive things. I don't necessarily mean things that will get you applause or that everyone will notice. I mean big things because they're important, because God is calling you to them. Things that no one may notice, but they have eternal significance, eternal impact. The, the reality is that God is actually pressing you, calling you, inviting you to do things now. The, the thing that God may be calling you to do may be missionary one day, but right now it might just be talk to that classmate. It may be start an orphanage one day, but what if right now he just wants you to take a step of faith and give up that sinful relationship that you've been involved in and you know you need to cut loose on. It feels like you can't, but God's calling you to do uncomfortable things, hard things, one step at a time. And he promises, just as he promises Moses, I will be with you. 
You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to know what you're going to do in five years. You don't have to know if you've got enough in you to be able to do it. All you've got to know is that what I'm calling you to do now, I'll give you enough to see it through. I mentioned one other person in that list, the, that person who's a part of the whole club of people who aren't sufficient. I mentioned at the very end the Apostle Paul. And that's one that I think surprises people because most people, when they think of the Apostle Paul, it's this man, Saul, who was raised in some of like the finest Jewish education. He was studying under this guy named Gamaliel, who was like rock star rabbi that everybody knew, like nationally famous. And Paul was like his protege. And, and Paul was like a fast riser, a mover and a shaker. And he had all this education from all these places. And God converts him and uses him to begin to spread his message throughout. And most people, when they think of Paul, they think God called somebody specially gifted, somebody incredibly talented, somebody who had everything together. And in some ways that might be true. But Paul would say himself that he considered himself insufficient for the task that God had given him. Multiple times, specifically in 2 Corinthians, he points this out. In 2 Corinthians 3, in 2 Corinthians 4, and in 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about this very mysterious thing that people have spent years trying to figure out what it is. The specific weakness that Paul has, he just refers to it as his thorn in the flesh. And scholars have tried to dissect that and get to the bottom of it. And maybe he's talking about some kind of physical ailment that Paul has. And maybe he's talking about that he doesn't have very good vision. Or maybe he's talking about some specific temptation that Paul was always trying to overcome. Or maybe he's talking about the fact that wherever Paul goes and does his work, someone always comes in and it seems to be wrecking it. Whatever it is, there's this weakness that Paul can't seem to get past and he hates it. And he says in 2 Corinthians 12 that he pleads with God over and over and over again. Don't make me weak. Take it away from me, God. Give me strength through this. And here's the answer that God gives to him through his prayers. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, but he, the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. My strength is most often seen, is most clearly observed when I use weak people. Therefore, Paul says, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. For when I am weak, when I've got nothing to offer, when I don't have the ability to defeat my sin, when I don't have the ability to go speak to someone, when I don't have the ability to get up and have the energy to go serve and do those things, when I am weak, then I am strong because God's power is at work in that moment. So much better than anything else I could ever give. So much better than anything else you could ever give. God wants to use you for something big. Is inviting you in to the greatest rescue project of all time, to be a part of that. We want that for you. We want you to jump in. And he is calling you, but he is also equipping you to do that very thing. Let me pray. Dear God, it is my prayer that you would use your word to convict your people. Lord, and I ask for more than just like a feeling bad and I should do more. I ask for them, Lord, to have their eyes open to see uh, the joy of getting to serve you, of a life spent in sacrifice to what you may be calling us to do. And I pray that you would help them to see your sufficiency even where they are insufficient. I, I, I pray that you would show that to them this week. Show yourself sufficient and powerful in their lives to accomplish what you want to accomplish, to accomplish your purposes and further your kingdom. And I pray that you would mobilize us for your task. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Right, two things that we want you to know about. Uh, we've, we've talked about this for the last couple weeks, but I'm going to throw it out again to you. Next Friday, we have our fall retreat, and we are really, really excited about this. That's right. Yeah, you can whoop. You can whoop. Yep. Um, this, is, this is honestly uh, one of our favorite little events that we get to do to get away for 24 hours. Some of you may be going, I don't, know, I don't even know what this is. I don't know what this entails. I don't sign up for things that I don't know about. Okay, so... Here, I'm going to tell you about it. 60 seconds. I'm going to tell you everything that's going to happen on the retreat. Okay? We're going to leave next Friday at like 4.30, and we're going to head over to the Arkansas-Oklahoma border. 
Okay, well, that's okay. Okay, so we'll head over to the Oklahoma Arkansas border. We're going to go to New Life Ranch. Okay, and basically we're going to have three sessions where we talk about uh, emotionally healthy spirituality. There's a guy named Randy Garris who is one of our favorite speakers. Um, we love Randy Garris. Some of you guys have seen some of his videos, and he's going to talk about what does it look like to not just grow up spiritually but to make sure I grow up emotionally at the same time because those two things are tied. And I can only go this far if I'm not willing to grow emotionally too. So how do I do these two things at the same time? And he's going to be uh, an incredible treat for you to get to, get to hear. We're going to basically do three sessions with him and then we're going to have a lot of free time to just hang out and talk together and ride go-karts on Saturday for a couple hours. So you need to sign up for this. You need to come, all right? $35 is all it costs, and if you're a freshman, $20. We want you to come do this. You can scan that QR code and join us next week, all right? One other thing. If you are new, if, if this is your first time here, we have a way, maybe, <laughs> our way of trying to bribe you to come talk to us and meet us. All you got to do is just come up and introduce yourself, and we have the world's greatest chocolate chip cookies made by my wife, Amy. I'm not just saying that because... She's my wife. I'm saying that because they're objectively the world's greatest chocolate chip cookies. Come meet us and come try one right now. You can start heading this way. Everybody else here dismissed. We love you guys. Good job, man. Thank you. Oh, no.